right. So good morning, church. Today we are continuing to talk about some very important things in the Bible, some very heavy things of the Bible, and it has done nothing but excite my spirit this week because, man, these are heavy passages. And um, Pastor Rick did a great job last week at just kind of illustrating what is the heart of the times we're in. Has anyone noticed, honestly a question, has anyone noticed how crazy our world is right now? Have you seen it? Have you looked outside the window, looked online? Okay, all of us have. Okay, get it, get it. So, what God put on my heart is just following Pastor Rick's lead as he kind of talked about what is the heart of the end times? Is this the end times? Are what we're experiencing right now, are we seeing signs of Jesus' second coming? These are really important questions. Can I just see a show of hands? I can see nods. Is this on your heart? Are you asking yourself these questions? Amen. All of us are. Because the, the times are crazy. And when the times are crazy, we need oftentimes to hear from the Lord in a fresh way. And so what I want to do is walk through a passage that I've traditionally, and maybe you have too, have found it really intimidating because I don't know what to make of it. And that's Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the end times. And so we're going to look at this. It might be intimidating for you. It also might be like maybe you love it and you go into it. it sometimes we might just need a, a fresh look at it as well. And so what we're going to do is, you guys are so lucky, we're going to do a walkthrough of Matthew 24 with the, a live-action Pastor Mark commentary. Isn't that amazing? This is going to be awesome. You guys are so blessed. I love this. All right, here we go. So we're going to get into it, but before, what God really put on my heart was before we even jump into and even talk about the end times and what Jesus is actually talking about, we have to kind of level set a few things, because we all come to the Scripture with our own context, our own lenses, and our own agendas that we kind of put onto the Scripture, and we need it to fulfill for us, if we're honest with ourselves. And so what we want to do is make sure that we are kind of having, these, there's rules of, of, there's some regulation rules, there's some rules of engagement that we need to kind of go through first, before we kind of enter it, just to make sure that we're all kind of level-headed and level-setted. So the first thing, and I'll put it up on the screen, is this word apocalypse. The apocalypse, when we think of the word apocalypse in apocalyptic literature, typically we think of this, ah, apocalypse, doom and gloom. Literally, when you, add, when you Google the definition for apocalypse, it says the Christian idea that the world is going to be destroyed and doomed. We created this idea, right? This is, a, this is our fault as Christians. This isn't actually what apocalypse means. What apocalypse means, the literal word means this, to unveil or to reveal something. There's, there's a, a, a mask coming off, so you see things the way that they really are. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you guys would love to read the Word of God and have an apocalypse, that you see the world for how it really is? I, I love that, and God does that in Scripture all the time. You guys might think of the example of um, Elijah and his servant were on the battlefield, right? And his servant's like, Elijah, we're going to look at all these masses and amounts of armies. They're going to take us over, and this is going to be doomsday. Ah, and he prays for his servant and says, God, would you open up his eyes that he may see a real reality? And his servant's eyes were opened so that he could see armies of angels and spiritual beings around him so that he would know, oh my gosh, we're taken care of. That's amazing. We see it in Isaiah and a lot of the prophets where they get these glimpses into heaven and there's all this imagery and these vivid dreams. This is God opening the veil to have them see into a new reality. This is what reality actually is. Amen? We see it with Paul. When Paul runs into Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul's on his way to slaughter Christians because Christians are the problem with the world, and Jesus stops him in his tracks in, in this like transcendent way, and, and Paul's eyes are open. He's like, oh my gosh, the people I'm killing are actually telling the truth. This is a, a day-and-night paradigm shift. It's crazy. 
So this happens all over. Apocalypses happen in the Bible with this big revealing. Even John, he writes the book Revelation because he had been revealed a glimpse of a new reality. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. So here's the question. What do we do when we have an entire book or entire scripture that is all apocalyptic? And there's imagery and there's signs and there's all sorts of things. And all, most of us, we don't know what to do with it. And it's scary. And so we're going to do, we're going to kind of brave it today, if you will. And we're going to take a shot at it. Because even as a pastor, what's, what's tempting in my spirit is being like, eh, let's just not talk about it. Because it's, it's, too, it's too much. And so I'm taking a couple disclaimers. We're going to talk about a lot of things today. Recognize that Matthew 24 is one of the most heavily debated interpretive passages in the whole scripture. So people will see it from different angles and argue different things. We're going to try to walk through it responsibly and just take a look at what Jesus, just what the text gives us, and not try to assume too much into it, if that makes sense. Can we do that? Awesome. Amen. So we're going to jump into that, but Apocalypse is this thing that not only that people in the Bible had, but I genuinely believe for us this morning, God wants us to have as well. And in this time, God wants you to have an apocalypse. He wants you to have a revelation about a reality that you might have been blinded to or that you don't take seriously, if we're honest as Christians. Oftentimes in Christianity, we create a reality where what we see here on earth is what is also happening in heaven. And there are two different realities with two different things going on, and, and there's blend over those two things, but we're going to try to hash some of that out this morning. But I want to make this point, is the one truth about the apocalypse, that no one has a spiritual apocalypse and remains the same. This is in the Bible. When you get a glimpse into a new reality, you are going to be changed. You ought to be changed. Isn't that true? And so for many of us, when we come to know Christ, it's, it starts out as this like, oh, I, I get it. I know what... I get the story of Jesus, I see what he did for us, I receive him as my savior, which is great. But when you get to a place where your spirit is truly like, oh my gosh, this is real. There's a reality here, it's not just an idea, but it's, it's, it's manifested right now and I see this reality around me. Something changes in your spirit and you'll, ne you'll never be the same. You can never be a, a surface level Christian if you recognize that the Bible is our reality. It paints a picture of it, amen? So I wanna just recognize this, that these revelations, these apocalypses that we see in Scripture are meant for you to see into a new reality. And God is wanting transformation out of that. So, two approaches that I've noticed. And this is like how many of us are. Um, and with all the world, you know, that's going on, COVID-19 is happening and um, still going on and lockdowns and government control. And then we have racial stuff and people defunding governments. And then we have fires blazing, and we have hurricanes happening, and important people dying, and all of these things were like, what in the world is going on? Can we just agree the world is crazy? It is. The world is absolutely out of control right now. But there's two Christian responses that I want to kind of address that are extremes, and we want to kind of make sure we're not hitting on either of the extremes. And these are, these are ways to respond to the end times in, a, in a, an appropriate way. Number one is this, apathy. This is my, I'm speaking to my generation. We typically be like, ah, so over it. <laughs> and the youth, you guys are like, I don't really care what's going on. Whatever. Like, I'm just trying to be me, do my thing, right? And what happens, happens. It's all good. The other extreme is obsession. 
where every single detail that comes out, oh my gosh, did you see there's an explosion in the Middle East? And it's on page 666 of the newspaper. Oh my gosh. And then, and then we start putting all of these things into one magical puzzle where everything aligns to give us the algorithm that God really wants for us. To, so we know that he's coming back at May 17th at 11.54 p.m. Amen? No. That's not how we go. That's not a healthy approach to Scripture. And there's, there's a lot of us, and we, we get, we've been fed this, it's not even just now, we've been fed this for a long time. There's people on TV who are like, I'm going to give you a prophecy update. If you want to know when Jesus is coming back, I'm going to sign you up for this newsletter. And if you send that newsletter out to 10 more people, I'll give you the real answer. And if you send in your credit card right now, I'm going to give you all the answers you need right now. And people are like, sign me up. You know, where's my credit card? I can't get it fast enough. Because there's something in our spirit that is looking for answers. Amen? And so... What we want to try to uh, do is avoid this obsessive behavior where we're trying to place every single headline into Scripture and marry those two things and, and think that we're trying to solve one grand puzzle full of images and, and, and headlines and stuff like that. And we also don't want to be apathetic. We don't want to just not care because it's in the Bible for a reason. And Christians are called to be alert and on guard for a reason. Amen? So let's explore what that is. So before we jump into that, couple things. Vision check. Before you ever fly an airplane, there's so many things that you have to go through, right? You have to check your fuel. You got to check your engines. You got to do all of these things. Check your luggage. Check the wheels. Make sure the wheels are pumped up. All of that. And so the same thing for us. If we're going to approach a really heavy, dense text, let's make sure all of our systems are in place. Number one, these are rhetorical questions. When you engage with end times passages, do you see them in their larger text, their larger context? And it's like, okay, a lot of times we, we read the Bible, and we read a little section of it, and we say, aha, look at headline, this two sentences in the Bible. But if we take a step back and look at, wait, what is this actually going on in the Scripture? That might not make sense. Does that make sense? So our calling is to make sure we're not just looking at the tree, but we're looking at the forest at the same time and seeing if this everything is lining up. So the vision check is that, is do you see, or can you see, Scripture, especially end time scriptures, in a larger context. Now, I want to give a large context in a really simple way. When typically, when people ask us, "What do you believe as Christians? What's going on in the end times?" This is how we typically describe it, right? So we say, "Let me say it this way: When we talk about the end times, we've got to talk about the beginning times too, right? How many of you guys would love if you someone says, "Hey, have you seen like Star Wars, like a movie?" And they're like, "Oh no, I haven't. Tell me about it." Oh yeah. Oh, at the end, Darth Vader says that he's Luke Skywalker's father. And you're like, what? why would you start there? You know what I mean? If you're going to tell the story, tell the story. Amen? <laughs> this is what the big vision of it is. So the end times, when we talk about the end times, it fits into the beginning times, and it fits in the middle times. It's talking about the time we're living in now and how that affects the entire story of what God has done in this world. And so we see in the beginning, God created earth, right? So God created earth. And then we live life on earth as long as we can. And depending whether we're good or bad, we go where? We go to heaven. Sorry, writing is not neat. We go to heaven or hell. Yeah, this is, isn't this, whoa, isn't this what scripture is all about? It's like, and then here's me, right? Here's me. And so am I going to be good, a good boy, or a bad boy? And if I'm going to be a good boy, I go heaven. If I'm a bad boy, I go hell. This is how we've told people this is my, our Christian belief. There's so many problems with this. Problem number one, it's not about you. Your Christian faith isn't actually about you. 
And so this is the, the first problem we need to address. And second of all, we get heaven and earth separated from heaven because heaven is the place we go to when we die. It's not here. Earth is different. And hell is just the, that other place. And there's, there's just some pukas in there. Yeah, there's some missing things. So I just want to kind of maybe draw something a little simpler. It might help you just visualize it. So in the beginning, God created, say it out loud, God created heaven and the earth, okay, right? He created the heavens and the earth. And this is kind of symbolically like God's space and our space. He created heavens and all that's within them. He created angels and these spiritual beings that are alive and active, and they all live in the heavens. And earth, right? Earth is the people. Did you know that Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity? And the word Adama, if you just add a couple more letters, is dirt. We, humanity comes out of dirt. We are people of the earth. That is who the Bible tells us we are. We are people of the earth. This is our natural habitat here. But when Jesus says, hey, heaven and earth are coming together, there's overlap. Since the day one, we call this Eden, right? Eden is where heaven and earth came into harmony. And that's beautiful. It's like God can be with his people, in, uh, the people of the dirt. There is no sin to separate them from God and his angels. So we were all living in harmony. But guess what? Something happens, right? What happens? This thing we call sin. So what was once brought together got pulled apart. So I'm going to put heaven and earth. They got pulled apart by our own sin. And we are living in this tension where God has, even though we've been separated from God for our own sin, God has made bridges to continue to overlap us through the tabernacle, the temple, his dwelling was among us. You keeping up? Good. Okay. So then something else that's super important to mention is this. Make sure I get juice. Is, well, where does this, this thing come in? So because of our sin, hell came into earth. Is that it's, sin came into earth. Evil showed up on earth, and that's where the separation came from. Now, have you ever thought of this before? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. What does it not say? That God created hell. So God did not create hell. We created hell by our own rebellion from the things of God. Does that make sense? So hell then becomes a reality by which we live in. It's not just a place we go and we die. Are you tracking? So hell is the reality of sin and evil on this planet that we experience all the time. So when we see graciousness and self-sacrifice and compassion, we're like, oh my gosh, I get a glimpse of heaven. But when we see hatred and bitterness and war and injustice, this is glimpse of hell. We're getting glimpses of this reality. James says in chapter 3, he says, if you speak that your tongue has the power of life and death, if you say a word to curse someone, it's like it's lit on fire from hell. So hell is not just this thing we, that where we go when we die. Hell is this reality that we all live in, and we're trying to, Jesus is trying to get the hell out of you. Amen? That's what he's trying to do. Jesus came so he could get the hell out of you, so he can put heaven inside of you. Amen? That's, that's what he's trying to do. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and bridged this gap between heaven and earth, and we now live in this reality where one day heaven and earth are going to be like this. They can be fully united, heaven and earth together. I'm just going to put H and E. Because what happens to hell? It's casted out. There's no room for wickedness. There's no room for bitterness. There's no room for judgment. There's no room for uh, lust. There's no room for greed. There's no room for pride. Because what God wants 
is a heaven and earth, a unified heaven and earth where we can live together in his glory without the corruption of sin for eternity. So Jesus' ultimate plan was to make sure that not just sin leaves, but all that is evil has no place in his kingdom. And so this gets tricky because people are like, well, does he annihilate these people? Do they live in eternal torment? These are all the details we wrestle with, but that's not the point. The point is it's not going to be part of his new creation. Amen? So the goal here is God is trying to bring heaven and earth back together. This is what he's doing. Okay, now we can enter apocalyptic texts because we know the setting of the story. We know what God is up to. Okay, now I can read Jesus' words and have a little bit more clarity. Amen? Okay, so let's just jump right into that. So vision check. The next one, too, is a couple checks. Number two is a hearing check. You need a hearing aid as Christians to make sure that you can hear the heart of God in and among the details. Amen? This is typically what we do. As I jump right into Revelation, and I'm reading all these details, and I'm trying to figure out what they all mean, but I'm totally missed what the heart of the passage is all about. And this is what we want to do as Christians, is make sure we, we have our hearing aid in so we can hear the heart of God in and among the details that we don't get lost in the details. Amen? So, the encouragement here is this. Make sure you listen to Scripture and don't use it. Because here's what we've done. The last couple hundred years of church, know what we've done? Is we've wanted to argue for doctrines and we want to make it a proof text. And so we use the Scripture to prove what we think to be true. And in that process, oftentimes we stop actually listening to what Scripture is trying to tell us, what God is telling us through Scripture. So we want to make sure we're listeners, we're not users. This isn't something we just put out there just to make sure our agenda is in good place and we have the right beliefs. This is something we listen to and God transforms us as we listen to his word. Amen? Okay, so move it on. Last one is a heart check. You have a vision check, make sure you see the big picture. Ear check, your hearing check, make sure you're hearing the voice of God in the details, the heart of what he's actually trying to accomplish here on earth. The third one is this, your heart check. Ooh, this is the big one. When you engage with end times scripture... Are you searching for truth or for certainty? I'm going to say that again. When you engage with end time scripture, so when you start reading stuff about earthquakes and famines and all these beasts with multiple heads flying around and you're trying to figure it out, are you looking for truth or are you looking for certainty? This is an important question. And we're going to break down some differences because one of them is a good thing to pursue and one of them is not. Which one do you think is the good thing to pursue? The truth. We want to know the truth. We want to be followers of truth who is Christ, but we don't want to be caught up so caught up in being so certain about things that we lose sight of what's actually true. Amen? <laughs> so here's a couple things, just as you heart check yourself as you engage with these passages, here's a couple um, qualifiers to make sure you're in the right, right in, in the right sort of line of thinking. The first one is this, is that longing for truth brings us to Christ, Okay? So if you long for truth, your heart needs to know what is true and real in this situation. What reality am I actually living in? I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you back to a place of connecting with Christ because your heart is longing for truth. I need to know the truth. I need to know who is the truth. His name is Jesus. But if your heart is for certainty, it's going to drive you crazy. The difference is when, I, when the people who long for truth read Scripture and try to figure out who is Jesus here. What does this promise mean for me? The people who are certain for certainty are the ones who are like, well, I don't know if this detail totally lines up. What is, I need to have all the details in place, and Scripture needs to make sense in all these different ways before I can actually trust God. 
And the problem is you're going to drive yourself crazy. Here's like short glimpse. If you knew how many pukas were in scriptures in terms of details, which books didn't have this story in it, in the oldest manuscripts, how some words don't align, how some things in the Bible were changed over time, you'd be like, oh my gosh, because the certainty is up for grabs. The certainty, oh, we're not certain on things. Ah, it's scary. But if you know the truth, that something like 90-something percent of Scripture hasn't changed over hundreds, thousands of years, then you're stuck with the truth that the story of God is still the story of God, and that Jesus still reigns despite the details might be not aligning. Does that make sense? So we want to be pursuers of truth, pursuers of Christ, not pursuers of certainty in all things. And here's a news flash. Jesus speaks a lot in truth without giving you the certainty of the answers you're looking for. Happens all the time in Scripture. So we need to make sure we're aware that the Bible's purpose is not to give you every single answer for every single problem. It is to point you towards Jesus, who is the answer. Amen? So if we get that straight, we're going to read Scripture well. Next one is this. Certainty or pursuing truth leads to contentment. But pursuing certainty often leads to confusion. So if you are pursuing certainty and you are trying to align everything into one majestic puzzle where everything makes sense and you can be, ah, you are going to be so much more confused and go in all these circles. But if you pursue truth, it leads to contentment because you come to a place where Jesus says, I'm enough. You don't need to know all the details. That's actually what he does in Matthew 24. He's like, trust me, I'm going to give you what you need here and trust me that I can... He's always going to be the God of manna from heaven, that he will give you exactly what you need every day to make sure you, you have all that you need to pursue a life worthy of his calling. Amen? So he is a daily bread God. Sometimes certainty wants everything now. I want everything in alignment so I can have a con concrete idea here, make a rational decision, and oftentimes we don't get it in the Bible, if we're honest. So we need to make sure we're pursuing truth over that. And there's one more comparison that I thought was worth mentioning that the need for truth derives from trust in God. If I'm searching and I'm lost and I'm hopeless and I have no sense of truth, I have no strong foundation in my life to walk on, I need a reality that is so sure and so strong that I know I can build my future and my destiny on this. His name is Jesus. And so if we're pursuing that truth with the hunger to find life in this life, we're going to find Jesus. It's gonna, we're going to find trust in God. But if we're looking for certainty, you know, where does that come from? Certainty derives from fear, anxiety, and insecurity. A lot of times. Why do people need every single answer lined up for them? Because there might be something scary about it. And I need to know the answers or else I'm not going to be okay. Jesus is saying, pursue me and you'll be okay. The answers will come. You know, did, have you thought of this? Like, we're all on earth maybe 100 years at the very most. Like, most of us are halfway there or past halfway there. But here's the thing is we're looking at X amount of years until we know every answer. Isn't that cool? Like in, in like 50, 60, maybe 70, 80 years for most of us, we are going to know every answer because we're going to be united with Christ. Our job right now isn't always to find the answers. It's to find Christ. That's our pursuit. We pursue Jesus. We pursue the things of God here on earth. All right. Everybody on track with this. Awesome. So we're going to jump into Matthew 24. But again, stepping back and looking at it. We need to start with Matthew 23. What's going on in this story? Matthew 23, at the very end, verses 37 to 39, it says this. Jesus just spent his whole, this whole chapter rebuking 
people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the hypocrites. He says, woe to you Pharisees seven times and just rips them apart. And he ends it this way. It's a beautiful passage. He says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. He's talking about himself. Israel had rejected God, had rejected Christ. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you won't let me. Whoa. This is a beautiful statement. Jesus isn't saying, my feelings are hurt because you rejected me, and now, woe to you, I'm going to destroy this place. He's saying, it's coming out of love. He's saying, I love the people of Israel so much, I want to take them back from your leadership and put them under my wings like a mom does to her baby chicks. This is a deeply loving and compassionate Jesus. This kind of language is, is moving. It's emotional. It's attaching. And now, look, your house is abandoned and desolate. Talk about the temple. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's like, you guys didn't receive me this time, but trust me, next time you see me, there's going to be no denying who I am. This is beautiful. This is, he's starting to get prophetic now. He's starting to talk about the future now. He said, wait till I'm back. Then you'll see, right? So then we move into Matthew 24, where it starts getting crazy. Matthew 24 starts this way. Oh, guess what, guys? I thought it, because it's such a lengthy passage, if you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to open up and read along with me. And I, the heart is this, is we put verses on the screen and it's easier, my heart was like, man, for me, sometimes the intimidation comes when I'm sitting with my actual Bible and I get to Matthew 24, I get to Revelation, I'm like, ooh, don't know what to do with that. I'm going to go to the fun verses again. You know what I mean? And so I want to make sure that we're going to challenge this fear together today. And we're going to open up Matthew 24 and we're going to read it together and walk through it together and again, you guys are so blessed to have me walking you through it today. I'm just kidding. Okay, so Matthew 24, open your Bibles with me. It starts at verse 1. If you have your phone, that's fine. I think I have the NLT or NIV, um, whatever, you can follow along with other translation you like. Now, it says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his di disciples came to his attention to its buildings. So Jesus just, okay, wait, he was just scolding the people in Jerusalem, the, the Pharisees in the temple. They walk up to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside the city, and I don't have a picture, but from the Mount of Olives, you can see everything. You can see the, the Temple Mount. You can see the city behind it. You can see, like, just hills, and it's beautiful. That's not Israel. That's Kailua, but you get the idea. But, so here's the thing is Jesus is, takes them up on this mountaintop, and he says, and the disciples are like, oh my gosh, Jesus, look how beautiful our city is, just after he came out of the temple and ridiculed everybody. So what does Jesus say naturally? He says, do you see all these things, he asked. Oh, they asked him, and he said, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Ooh, mood killer. But Jesus, look how pretty our city is. And he's like, no, this whole city is going to go to ruins. It's, it's a mess. This whole thing's a mess. So it's like, oh, okay. So here's what's awesome. Getting back to certainty and truth. The disciples had uncertainty of who Jesus was and what he was trying to accomplish. They didn't get this full picture yet. We're blessed that we, that we get that. So they asked him two questions. And guess how many answers Jesus gave to those two questions? Two answers. Exactly. Jesus does a thank you, Jesus, for answering both of these questions. And he actually does it in order. So we're going to try to track with this responsibly as we just read the story. So they said this, 
he, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Question number one, when will this happen? Now, this is so important. Don't miss this. What is the this they're talking about? They're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. When will this happen? Because that's what Jesus just said. I'm tearing the city down. So the next question is, when is this going to happen? Okay? So don't forget, a lot of times think, people think they're talking about when the second coming is going to happen. The first question is, when is Jerusalem going to be torn down? Number two is this. When will this happen, and what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? That's the million-dollar question. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus answered... Thank you, Jesus, for answering this. By the way, he could have been like, don't you trust me? You have little faith and just left. It's like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for actually giving us something here. Okay, so Jesus answered their uncertainties with truth. He says, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. I am the Messiah, and I will come claiming that I am the Messiah, and I will deceive and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Wait, wait, wait. But Pastor Mark, the war is happening right now. Isn't this signs of the end? What does Jesus say? It's, it's not quite the end. You're going to expect these things. This is, this is how the world works, right? This is what Jesus is getting at. If you get how the world works, then you'll see these things happening and recognize uh, the beginning is starting. Or the, sorry, the end is starting. So he says this, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. It's still not quite in sight. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of birth pains. What is he saying? He's saying deceit is at this. So if you, if you want to take notes, the first sign that Jesus really gives us here is deceit. And all of that he talked about falls under deceit. He says, there's going to be people, there's going to be a government, there's going to be a world that is trying to deceive you out of the things I've already commanded you, right? So deceit looks like wars and rumors of wars and all this political uh, injustices and all these things going on. They're trying to deceive you that it's the end. Guess what? It's not the end. These are birth pains for what's to come. These, this is the beginning. This is what you expect the world to act like in the last days. Does that make sense? So deceit is at the core of this. And let me be clear, deceit is trying to get us to be apathetic towards the end times, and deceit is trying to get us to be obsessive towards the end times, because neither of which Christ is asking us to be. Christ is asking us to be a place where we stay alert, but we're going to get there. That's what he's going to tell us. So nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by the nations because of me. Oh, wow. Mockery, torture, persecution. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets, prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who does what? Stands firm. In the end, will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Whoa, okay, slow down, Jesus. What's going on here, right? So there's so much that he's, that he's, that he's going through here. I want to just point out a few really quick things. Number two, if you're taking notes, number two is persecution 
Oh, sorry, war and famine would have been number two. He, he talked about those deceit, war and famine. The other one is persecution and mockery. This is part of it. Now, remember, which questioning is he answering? He's still answering, when is Jerusalem going to fall? But for many of us, we're like, wait a minute, isn't he talking about now? Is he talking about, like, the times to come? And the answer is yes. So here's something really, really tricky. Can you show that picture of Mount Olomana again? When it comes to reading, here's the big secret. When it comes to big reading, especially Jewish poetic prophecy, Pastor gave this illustration last week. It was a beautiful illustration with the Rocky Mountains, and I thought I would make them more local so we understand them, yeah? So we get Olomana and the Ko'olaos behind it. If you're standing in, like, Kailua Beach or Lanikai, Waimanalo, and you're looking towards Waimanalo, you can see Mount Olomana, and you can see the Ko'olaos, but how close they are, you cannot tell. But as soon as you drive Manawili, or as soon as you drive back roads Waimanalo, you can start seeing the gap, how far there actually is between the Ko'olao Ridge and Mount Olamana. You see that? So here's what is, happens in prophecy as well. As prophets project into the future these words of God, and we don't know whether it's, oftentimes it's hard to tell if it's first coming or if it's second coming. We actually have to get closer to see the distance between those two things. Now, hear me out on this. Esther loves puns. She's getting into puns. She's seven. She, said, she told me the other day, she came upstairs, and she's like, oh, Dad, yeah, and she's holding a, a wood, a board of wood. She said, Dad, I'm so bored. <laughs> and I was like, Esther, that's actually really funny. Like, she's like the dad joke queen of seven-year-olds. But this is actually a lot of times how prophecies are in the Bible. They don't do plays on words. They do plays on stories. So here's what happens. If you're reading these passages and you're like, wait, are these signs of the end times or the signs that Jerusalem's going to fall? The answer is yes. Oftentimes, it's alluding to both. And this happens throughout Scripture. There's a great illustration in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is ragging on this king of a, a place called Tyre. And he's saying, You're a, Tyre was a, an ally of Israel, and then it betrayed them and deceived them, backstabbed Israel in some treaty deal. And the prophets are like, You king of Tyre, you are wicked. And it's condemning him for all his wickedness. And then it starts saying stuff like, you are seated at the right hand of God. You are adorned with jewels. You are cast out of heaven, and you came down and slithered on your belly. And you're like, wait a minute. Is this talking about Satan, or is this talking about the king? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Oftentimes, these kinds of prophecies are blended, and that's what makes them beautiful and poetic, is that they actually, they're, they're pro prophesying two different things, and they're bringing those prophecies into alignment together. And so we see the big picture and the small picture at the same time. We don't know how to do this. How do I see the trees and the forest at the same time? I don't know. But Jewish poetic prophecy actually helps us to do that a little bit. So they blend things together. So if you're saying like, Pastor Mark, are you telling me that these earthquakes and famines that we're seeing now, are they t are, were, was this for the fall of Jerusalem or was this for, for that prophecy or is it the, for the prophecy of the end and the second coming? It could be both. And here's what's great. is Jesus is giving us these things, all of these prophecies with this, like he said in that last section of verses, he says, this is what we expect of the world. So this is what led to the fall of Jerusalem, and this is also what's going to lead to my end times. I think there's both are going to be at hand. Does that make sense? So good news, you don't have to pick sides this morning. <laughs> and again, these are just, again, back to the disclaimer, there are people who have studied these scriptures in and out who make all kinds of different interpretation things, and so you can study it and see for yourself, but this is just sort of, I think, a healthy way to approach this scripture when you recognize what is actually going on here in the text. So, so 
Watch that no one deceives you. There's going to be wars and famines. There's going to be persecution and mockery. And the gospel is going to go to all the nations. Now, a lot of people read this and be like, this is actually what's happening in Acts. If you read Acts, people were being persecuted. Read the story of James, that people were dispersing and Christians were leaving the faith. And James is like, stop leaving the faith. Make it through. The persecutions will end. And so many of these prophecies people think were fulfilled in Acts. Some people think are there still to come, just so you know. But number 15, this is a big one. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down. Take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for a pregnant woman and pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Wow. For, when, for then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never equaled again. What? The greatest distress of all time, never equaled before, and never equaled again? You know what's awesome? What the Bible also says? When King Josiah took reigns as king, they said there was never a greater king than Josiah, and never again there will be a king like Josiah. And then Hezekiah came, and they said, never was there a king like Hezekiah, and never again will be there a king like Hezekiah. Oftentimes, these exaggerated words are used to make you see this is going to be heavy. This is going to be real. Those kings are great. Does it literally mean there's the greatest king of all time? Not really. It's just exaggerated language. I think the same thing is going on here. So the distress is going to be real. Is it going to be the worst? People are like, oh my gosh, we're looking out for the worst distress of all time, and we're starting to measure how distressful everything in the world has ever been. And they're like, you're just not going to get, if you're pursuing the certainty on that statement, you're going to go in circles. So let's pursue the truth. It's going to be rough. <laughs> it's going to be rough. It's verse 22 says this, if those days had not been cut short, one would survive, but for the sake of the elect of those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will not appear and, and will appear and perform great signs and wonders to what? To deceive you, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. He says, guess what? There's going to be people who are claiming that they are me, claiming that they're better than me or they're reincarnated me. And if you look through history, there's so many people that came right after Jesus claiming to be him again or better than him, another Messiah figure. So this is something that's a little bit distant for us. We can still see spiritually that there's false prophets or false messiahs, people who take on the, the role of trying to be a Messiah maybe. But nobody's, these days, nobody's straight out saying, I'm Jesus. And if they do, nobody takes them seriously, right? So this is more of a, t a problem of that time, I would say. I think it's healthy to say this is a sign of the fall of Jerusalem. So then it gets to this. We're going to finish this last, last little segment and take a deep breath. So if anyone tells you there is, uh, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. He, here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever a carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus is saying, like, I'm coming back, and people are going to follow me like vultures and try to feed on every little piece of scrap they can find. 
But he says, if you can see lightning in the west from the east, that's how bright my second coming is going to be. So number one, two, if we're thinking about rapture, when we think about when Jesus returns, it's not going to be subtle and quiet and you disappear in your clothes, like your clothes fall on the ground. It's, it's going to be loud. There's going to be trumpets. There's going to be bright, shining lights. It's going to be loud. It's heavy. It's exciting. It's going to be super ostentatious. It's not going to be a quiet, private, going into the dark. <laughs> He's going to come like a thief in the night in terms of the, how sneaky and how unpredictable the timing is going to be, but it's not going to be a quiet thing. I think the scripture leads us that way. Now, check this out. Immediately after the stress of those days, again, he's still talking about, in my mind, the fall of Jerusalem. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And if the stars fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. He's quoting Isaiah. Isaiah's talking about Babylon. He's talking about the fall of Babylon. Jesus is taking the words of the fall of Babylon and saying the fall of Jerusalem is going to be the same. Just like that. And when, let me say this, because people look like, oh, oh my gosh, an eclipse. That means the end is near. Look what it says in the Bible. This is poetic language. It's cosmic language. I'm convinced, and here's why. When Babylon fell, the earth and the sun and the moon didn't disappear. It was poetic language to say everything you know that is real and normal and, and in place on earth is going to disappear. This is what it's trying to communicate. And the same thing, when Jerusalem falls, when, when Christ comes back again, everything, the sun, the moon, and stars, everything we've set into motion is going to be changed. It's going to be wiped away. So there's, a, there's something new coming. There's, a, there's a, dis, uh, a veering away of what we're used to as normal, if that makes sense. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, which is from Daniel 7, with power and great glory. He will send his angels, again, a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the heavens to the other. Whew. How are you guys doing? Almost there? We're almost through. Keep pushing. We're going to do this. We're going to finish this. Now, this is so important. Learn this lesson from a fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and as leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Jesus is saying, I want you to know these signs so you know when the season is changing. Amen? The season is changing. Something's on the horizon. There's birth pains that are birthing something new. This is what Jesus wants us to capture. Then he says this, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this is important, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass. This is important. What question, remember? Let's go back to the question. What did, people, what did they ask? When will this happen, the destruction of Jerusalem? And when is he saying? It's not going to happen before, or it is going to happen before this generation passes. Now, this is a, an interpretation, so take it or leave it. But a lot of times, when a generation in Hebrew, when they say a generation, how many years do you think they're talking about? What is one generation in a, think about Hebrew biblical terms. It's about 40 years, right? 40 years is one cycle. It's one generation. So 40 years, if Jesus is truly saying in 40 years, this stuff is going to happen before the 40-year mark, guess what? Jerusalem did fall 37 years after Jesus said this. Rome sacked it. And they took everything out. And when we talk about the abomination of the desolation that sits in the place of God's holy throne, Rome built a statue to Caesar and placed it in the Jewish temple. And so many people say, historically, this is what Jesus was talking about. Yet, remember the dual prophecy thing, some of these signs are going to be continuing until the second coming. Are you tracking? Amen. Okay, good. Just check. I know there's a lot here. You guys, thank you for your attention this morning. This is, there's a lot, but it's so good. 
Okay. So then there's a transition from heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, whew, the day and the hour unknown. This is probably the most important part. Now he's starting to answer the second question. When is your second coming? When is your return? He says this, about that day or hour, you know, I, he gave a very clear answer, when's the fall of Jerusalem? He says, this generation won't pass without you seeing it. And then they say, but what about the second question? When's your second return? He says, that day or hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Guys, Jesus didn't even know when it was going to happen. He's probably like, guys, I would tell you if I knew, but I can't. He says, only the Father knew. And I hear this all the time because when we get back to our pursuit of certainty of details, I heard this said one time and it made me cringe. You know, when people say, oh, you know, the Bible says no one knows the time or the hour when Jesus is going to return. I heard somebody say, yeah, but just because nobody knows doesn't mean we can't figure it out. It's like, so to be clear, nobody is supposed to know. Nobody is going to know. Okay? So this is what Jesus says. He sets the template here in, on, on Mount of Olives. Every single gospel says it. Luke says it in Acts. He says nobody knows the time or the hour, so let's get going and pre preach the message. Amen? Um, there's, Paul says it. Peter says it. Everybody repeats this over and over. Nobody knows that. This was a commonly accepted thing that shucks. I really wish I knew the answer of when God was coming back, but I don't know. We can't know. Only God himself knows. But these days, we have a lot of puzzle makers who are sitting in their rooms making algorithms about the end of the world as if this verse wasn't repeated over and over in Scripture. And let me be very clear. If you are pursuing truth, there will be a contentment in your heart to say, it's okay to not know. Amen? This is where we need to live. It's okay to not know. Now, if God didn't, if no one is supposed to know, why would he tell us the signs? Right? If you didn't want to know where I lived, why would you tell me directions to get there, so to speak? It doesn't make sense. So what do we do with the signs? This is the next big question we have to wrestle with. So, I just want to quickly go through this, only like five more verses, guys, I promise. So, for the days, listen to this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Whoa, remember Noah, built an ark, waited on God. I have no idea when God is coming, when he's going to actually send this flood. I'm just going to be obedient in the season while I wait. Hold on to that. I'm going to be obedient in the season I wait. And it says this, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Nobody knew it was coming, the flood. That's the point. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Important verse here. Who was taken away? The wicked. Who remained on earth? The righteous, Noah and his family. So then he says this, that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Who is taken? The wicked. The same as Noah. He's using, he's paralleling it with Noah's story. Noah, the wicked are taken, the, the righteous remain. Right? Righteous remain, wicked are casted out. The same thing. Two are in a field, the, the righteous stay, wicked have to go. He says, two women are grinding at a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. We use this verse and get it mixed up. We think God will come and snatch up all the good people and leave all the wicked to burn. That's not actually what the Bible's telling us. The second coming, the heaven and earth are going to be reunited. And who is good is staying in God's kingdom and the wicked are being casted out. Does that make sense? Good. Okay, tracking. So, last little section. Therefore, finally, Jesus, what does this all mean? Therefore, keep watch. 
because you don't know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch so his house wouldn't be broken into. So you must also be ready. He's, saying, he's not saying that he's a thief and he's going to come steal your house. He's saying that be ready the same as you would be ready to watch your own house. You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour. You do not expect him. Okay? So, but wait. If I can predict it, then I can expect it. Ha ha. I can beat the system. No, you can't. It's going to happen when nobody is expecting it. That's pretty wild to even think about. So if you're taking notes, here's where I kind of wanted to kind of conclude. And he goes into some parables after that, and they're important, but just for time's sake. Um, signs of the times. Number one, deceit. Number two, war and famine. Number three, persecution and mockery. These are all present. Number four, the abomination of the desolation in the Temple Mount. And it leads us to these two beautiful parables. And these two beautiful parables, I'll summarize them for you. Jesus goes on to say, Look at I've given you all this information. Let me tell you the story. Let me get back to the heart of it so you guys can understand this. There's a story of a master waiting who, who has to leave town, and he gives his servant everything and says, steward what I have well. The master is gone, and the steward sits around and looks around, and he's like, oh, I can get drunk with the master's wine. I can spend the master's money. I can eat the master's food. I can abuse the master's servants. And he does all these things, and the master comes back and condemns him because in the waiting he was an unfaithful servant. Are you with me? Then he tells another parable that there's going to be a wedding and that there's 10 bridesmaids that are here. The groom is coming back and in Jewish weddings, the groom leaves and comes back for his bride. This is why they call the second coming a wedding because God has gone, but he's coming back like a groom for his bride. And so these 10 bridesmaids, these 10 women going to this feast, five of them are foolish, five of them are smart. The five foolish ones be like, eh, we're lazy, don't need to do much, we'll wait till he actually gets here. The smart ones say, let's go prepare oil in our lamps right now so that we have something to bless the groom when he comes. And guess what happens? The groom shows up. The five smart ones had the oil, made it into the party. And the other girl's like, oh, no, we have no oil in our lamps. What do we do? So they're like, go to the store. Run really quick. Get some oil for your lamps. And they don't have enough. You need it to be well prepared. And so here's what I want to get at. This is how Jesus finishes this. Is this question... What does it mean to stay alert, to keep watch? Number one, pay attention to the world. Please do. If you're apathetic, pay attention to what's going on because it does matter. God is trying to tell us there are signs. There's, you'll notice the atmosphere when the season is changing. And I think many of us are getting that. The season is changing. Now, if you want to say, like, well, tell me then, how many more years? Let's not get into certainty. Let's get into the truth. The world is changing, and we know God is in control. Amen? So pay attention to the world. And number two is this. The big invitation in the middle of that passage was to stand firm, endure, remain in him. Wait well. This is the third one. Wait well. This is what he gets in, in, our, in, in that, those last two parables. He says this. How do we stay alert? Number one is pay attention. Number two, stand firm. And number three is to wait well. Be ready with integrity in your heart and fuel in your lamp. Here's where this, what this means for us. How good are you at being in this waiting season? This is what Jesus is challenging us. The reason he gave us the signs is to keep us going, to keep us making sure we have oil in our lamp for the day the groom returns. How much oil is in your lamp? How much fire 
so to speak, is in your heart to preach the good news, to see heaven come on earth, to see compassion take over where there's injustice, right? The things that God has set before us to love God and to love people. Church, there needs to be right now a new illumination in your heart about how real this reality is. Amen? So if this is not a reality for you, you are going to be a sleepy bridesmaid. Are you tracking? If you don't get this, you're going to be a sleepy bridesmaid. You're like, eh, when Jesus comes, he comes. Jesus is like, I need you to be alert and I need you to be on guard because things are changing. And God is bringing heaven back here to earth. And if we're not ready, if we're caught off guard, he's going to be like, why didn't you steward what I gave you? He has given you gifts and he wants to electrify those gifts more intentionally now than ever in your life. Let me tell you this. He wants you to step out and be intentional. He doesn't want you to get sleepy at the wheel, so to speak. Our calling right now is to stay alert, to wait well, be ready with integrity in our hearts and fuel in our lamps. Amen? And I want you to pray this over yourself as we pray it here together in a moment. What does that actually look like for you? If this is just another day of another year for you, and this kind of lazy faith, not to be critical, but this sort of like sleepy faith that many of us have been walking through for years and years and years. If this is any much, if, you, if, if your spirit doesn't change in this time, I don't know what will. We have to be activated to be alert and on guard because he is coming. When? I don't know. Is this the times? Probably the beginning. But Jerusalem has crashed. The second coming, we're between Mount Olomana and the Ko'olaus right now, you guys. We're in this waiting period, and if we're waiting for the second coming of Christ, I want to be a bridesmaid with oil in my lamp. I want to be a God who is stewarding everything I have the best of my capacity. Amen? Let's be so intentional. Let's make sure that we're not getting so caught up in the details that we're missing the heart of the Scripture. The details isn't trying to figure out when He's coming back. The heart is, do I have enough oil in my lamp? Am I running on empty right now? And if so, can we pray for you today to walk out of this place with more fire in your heart for Christ's kingdom to come here on earth like it's, we already know it's coming. Amen? This is what God is leading us into. So let's bow our heads and we're going to worship in a moment. But let's bow our heads and pray for this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this long, dense explanation <laughs> of what's to come, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for answering our questions. We thank you, God, for giving us, or giving us truth, even when we're looking for certainty. I pray, God, for a contentment in our hearts to live in this waiting season well. God, that we would step into an expectant heart that the bridegroom is coming back to marry his bride and that you're going to make everything right and that all that is, going to, all that is wicked and unjust is going to be replaced by all that is compassionate and self-giving. We thank you, God, for your extravagant love for us, a love that we don't deserve. And we thank you, Jesus, that we get to edify each other in this love, in this time. God, that our eschatology affects our pneumatology, which affects our ecclesiology, which just means, God, we're living in these times where your spirit and your church are going to be lit on fire. And pray, I pray that right now, God, for our church. I pray that every single conversation that we have wouldn't be just another la-dee-dah conversation. God, that there'd be an intentionality in our spirit that when we talk to another human being that we care about their soul so much, we want to see them at that wedding party. We pray, Jesus, that every single encounter we have with people would be taken, we would remove the judgment, we'd remove the criticism that we inherently have for others, and you'd replace that with compassion and love for them. 
I pray, God, that we would see you clearly in other people, that we treat them as you would treat them, that, we, that every man and every woman has a divine breath in them. No matter, Lord, how much we dislike them, if they're enemies, God, I pray that we would help us to love our enemies. And so, Jesus, I pray that this season would be one where every moment counts. Help us, God, to not be so caught up looking at the future that we would forget to live right now. And so, Jesus, our prayer is that for that right now. It's to celebrate you are so good. You are still good, God. Nothing has changed. If anybody's spirit in this house is getting weary because of the times, I pray, God, that there would be a refilling of oil in that lamp, that there would be a brand new expectation for, the, for your coming, God, and that we would be a church with hearts ready that would be on alert and on guard for what you have coming. So, God, I pray that you would push us to be more on mission, to be more loving than we've ever even dreamed of, Lord. And I pray that with expectation. God, this season is changing us. Many of us can see that already happening. I pray, God, for more of that, more transformation. I pray, God, for a beautiful apocalypses for everyone in this church, for a revelation that this isn't just something we believe in, but this is the reality that we dwell within. Jesus, I pray for that. Unveil our eyes, God, to see the way that you see it. And so, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that staying true to your word is a way that we love you. And I pray, God, for every person here, to stay true in their devotion through the word, through prayer, and through walking out what you've called us to do in your spirit. So Jesus, I pray for all of these things in your name, for it is your glory we're after. It is your kingdom we're, we're trying to manifest here on earth. And God, it's all for your name's sake. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Can we stand up and praise God one more time? Amen. God is here, He is moving, and He is still good, and He's still faithful. So we want to worship Him one more time.